0: This is The Guardian. Today, the
1: third part of The Division New Orleans, a Today in Focus investigative series. If you haven't listened to episodes one and two, I recommend going back and listening to them first. Just a heads up this series features strong language and depicts scenes of violence. Previously on The Division, New Orleans. Quante Rida has been convicted of murder. His sentence, life without parole, at Angola Prison. Working in the fields under the watch of armed guards on horseback.
2: And how long were you made to do that sort of work? About 11 years. 11 years? Yep.
3: About 11 years. It is all labor in the field. Modern day slavery.
1: There were two suspects in the investigation. One was a guy called Bird, who allegedly had a motive. The other suspect was Quante. An eyewitness called Earl Price said he saw him do it. Price testified that he identified Quante in a lineup and signed the back of his photo. In court, his version of events was strange. He said that after the victim was shot four times, he strolled into the store and bought a Coke, something the pathologist said was highly unlikely, and the shopkeeper said never happened.
3: I'm looking at the jury and I'm looking like, I know y'all don't believe what you're listening to.
1: But Quante was convicted anyway. In Angola, he always said he was innocent. But he's been behind bars for nearly 30 years. Then,
3: the fight to undo 300 years of backwards thinking, 300 years of policing and prosecuting certain neighborhoods and protecting and serving others this fight has just begun.
1: Black progressive prosecutor called Jason Williams is elected. And he promises to look back over old cases. Cases where maybe something went wrong. Yeah.
3: But there's a lot of people in Angola right now who were scared of the system that was stacked against them in every way. This new era of criminal justice and the city of New Orleans is going to look very different than it did before. It is going to be very different
0: than it
3: was before. This, this is the hope that we've been looking for. And if this guy is, is half the person that he's been campaigning, you know, saying he is, then we got a chance.
2: When Jason Williams came to office, he said he wanted to reckon with the sins of the past. To look back at old cases where there are questions over whether that person should still be in prison. And to do that, he set up a special unit within the District Attorney's Office. Right, come on, give us the tour.
4: So here we are on the very beige fourth floor of the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office.
2: It's called the Civil Rights Division, division headed up by Emily Moore.
4: And Julia Merritt, who sit down here. This is Cormac Boyle. He is an assistant district attorney in the Civil Rights Division and the deputy chief of the Civil Rights Division. Emily's
2: not how you'd imagine a typical prosecutor. She sometimes wears jeans and sneakers in the office. She's showing my producer Josh and I around.
4: Um, and so, in the first year of our existence, we intervened in about 125 cases, and 100 of those people were released as a result of our work. And Cormac is responsible for a serious portion of those, uh, of those results.
2: <laughs> Starman. <laughs>
4: mm, he really is Starman. Okay. Yes, survives <laughs> largely on cigarettes and coffee, as far as I can tell.
2: Emily is British. She's got property in her office. So so I've
4: got PG Tips, this is actual PG Tips.
2: And for over a decade before this, she ran Innocence Project New Orleans. Her wall is full of pictures of wrongfully convicted men she exonerated.
4: The person next to that is Cedric Willis. He was my, uh, one of my clients at Innocence Project New Orleans in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. He served 12 years in prison for a crime that the prosecutors absolutely knew he didn't commit. They kept DNA evidence from the jury. Uh, Cedric was my first client who was exonerated in, in March of 2006. Um, and he lived 13 years free before being shot dead on the street um, two years ago. And that's him and his mother on the day he was exonerated and released from prison. Uh, Ah,
2: Emily and Jason are friends. Way before Jason was elected, the two of them used to sit down and talk together about what it would be like if they could ever get the keys to this office. What would they do? Naturally, part of it would be using the power of the office to search for wrongful convictions. And in New Williams, historically, there's plenty to look for.
4: Orleans Parish has, since they began documenting this, had the highest per capita rate of proven wrongful convictions in the country. And it hasn't just had the highest... This is
2: a jarring statistic. In the league table of wrongful convictions, Orleans is top. And it's not just that it's top. It's top by a long way.
4: what, What I came to learn or came to see and understand from years and years of litigating wrongful conviction cases here was that the way wrongful convictions happen in New Orleans is because of a grossly overburdened and under-resourced system in a very poor city and in a majority black city where a lot of the kinds of crimes that people are getting prosecuted for are the kinds of crimes that do not draw the attention of the public because they are street level violence that results in a black person dead and the court system simply doesn't care to put the kinds of resources and care into those cases as it does if a white person uptown is killed
2: as i listened to what emily is describing here the way wrongful convictions have actually happened in this city i kept thinking about Quante Rida how this is basically what he said happened to him. His childhood friend Mark, a young black man, was killed. Shot in one of the poorest neighbourhoods in the city. The investigation, he says, was badly handled. They decided Quante did it. They eventually convicted him. And he's been in Angola ever since. What Quante says has been done to him. What Emily is describing a lack of fairness to black residents in the city. It's more than just mistakes. It's a pattern, almost part of the design. Wrongful convictions are one result of that, but there are others too. So Emily and Jason didn't want to just stop there. They wanted to look at the entirety of mass incarceration in New Orleans. Even if someone actually did the crime they were convicted of, should they still be in prison? Were their sentences fair?
4: Orleans Parish has been the jurisdiction, the legal jurisdiction, that has the highest rate of incarceration in Louisiana for many, many years. And Louisiana has the highest rate of incarceration in the United States. And as many people know, the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the the world. And so New Orleans is ground zero for incarceration in the world.
2: One of the main reasons for that is the habitual offender laws, using someone's prior criminal record to massively increase their sentence. It's called multi-billing. And it's something that Harry Connick and all of his successors, right up until Jason Williams, used to use on pretty much every case they could. And the vast majority of people still in prison from New Orleans under those laws, 93% to be exact, are black. Having worked here in New Orleans in the criminal justice system for years, Emily, of course, knew this was happening. But once she started her work in the division, just seeing it all there in front of her, the scale of it, it kind of blew her mind.
4: I found myself looking at a, at a sentence and thinking, what am I missing? That's inconceivable. And the, the part that has been most surprising is, I'm not missing anything that's what's happened I don't think I anticipated coming into this job that I would cry most days not because I have some um inability to control my emotions but because I get so frustrated by the utter wastage that we see of of human life with the kind of sentencing that we are dealing with um yeah
2: Hello. How you doing? Good. 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 Not too bad. How are you? All right. Biddish Sama is one of just two assistant district attorneys working directly under Emily. He's a gentle guy, always smiling. And before this, he spent years working to get people off death row. He's been with the division from the start and he's been looking at a handful of potential wrongful conviction cases, including Qantes and we'll come back to that. But looking for wrongful convictions isn't the biggest part of Biddish's job. (laughs) Most of the cases he's handling are where the person probably did commit the crime, but the sentence might have been excessive. There are a lot of cases to look at which means going downstairs to the records department. Nice to
5: meet you, mate. You all right? How are you going?
2: Biddish takes Josh and I to look for the details of one of the most extreme cases he's working on. Sitting behind a computer is Devon Fleming, the records management officer. He gets up from his swivelly office chair and shows us around. On one wall, there are rows of tiny little drawers, maybe a hundred of them.
5: All right, so pretty much everything, starting with Harry Connick at the end of Jim Garrison, started in about 1970. which is The
2: drawers are organised alphabetically, and in each of them are hundreds of tiny little pieces of paper, tens of thousands, of thousands altogether.
5: So you have about 30 years of records in these two drawers. Each one of
2: them a person. Biddish is looking for a guy called Maurice Lewis.
5: Uh, first name Maurice. One second, let me just put this one back up.
2: The other side of the room is where hundreds of what look like tiny little cassette tapes are stored. Yep. Microfilm. When Devon opens the top drawer, this stink of vinegar rushes out.
5: You can smell the vinegar. Can you smell that? Yeah, you can. Smell. <laughs> oh, man, it does smell the vinegar, doesn't it? In Katrina, This was left here it was very heavy and they didn't want to move it so it was left in this very hot building uh, no air conditioning so the film started to deteriorate uh, which was called uh, vinegar syndrome and so a lot of the these are the last copies because the courthouse NOPD um, they lost a lot of their copies so we're the only people that have any record of these case files
2: Emily told me that in about a quarter of cases they've looked at, the DA's files are missing. And in most of the cases they've looked at from before Katrina, evidence has been destroyed. It's made the job of the division infinitely harder. But they find the box corresponding to Maurice's case.
3: So might be on one of these two.
2: And luckily, there's no vinegar smell. Once they found the right cassette, They put it into this incredibly old microfilm machine. Devon does some magic, twiddling some knobs to make the images clearer. And then they print them off. When Emily talked about the waste of human life in these multi-billing cases, the story of Maurice Lewis is exactly what she was talking about. He was a young black man living in New Orleans. His youth had been punctuated by a series of convictions for low-level crimes.
5: We start with the first one, which is from 1982. Um, It's a simple burglary. Uh, He was 19 years old at the time that this happened. He was Um,
2: with someone when they stole a stereo from a home. uh,
5: Mr. Lewis ended up pleading guilty to that offence, and he got sentenced to 18 months of hard labour.
2: Next was a purse snatching when he was 21. And again, Maurice was named as an accomplice, not the person who actually took the item.
5: He pled guilty. Um, He initially received a three-year sentence for the crime, but then the state used the multiple bill, the habitual offender law, to enhance that sentence, and so he ultimately received um, eighty months, which is six six and a half years. The next offense for Mr. Lewis is um, is an, is a burglary, um, and basically what happened here is Mr. Lewis a stolen umbrella from the screened-in porch of somebody's house. Um, Maurice pled guilty again. And, and again,
2: again the state the used porch, a multiple bill. Police police and Maurice was given six you know, years laws, in prison uh, all he had for taking someone's umbrella.
5: umbrella. So across these three crimes, he had gotten 14 years of his adult life.
2: Finally, so in trying, January 1998, uh, Maurice was arrested for a final time. Again for another purse-snatching. Purse
5: snatching. Uh,
2: he was found of guilty way. of cycling uh, past a white woman and taking her purse off her which arm, which had $20 inside. Uh, Mr. Lewis was there was no physical trial, harm.
5: So he went to trial in 1998. He was found guilty by a six-person jury. And as a result of his three prior convictions, which we just talked about, he ended up getting sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Mr Lewis, uh, across these four offences, took something like $64 worth of currency, possibly some stereo equipment, and an umbrella. And for all of that, he was sent away to die in prison.
0: Could you show me what the prosecutor argued as well?
5: Yeah, this is a closing, this is a transcript of a closing argument that was made by the prosecution in uh, Mr. Lewis's purse snatching trial in 1998. Frankly, it's, it's a tired uh, and uncreative and racist trope that the prosecutor uses to, to differentiate the jurors from Mr. Lewis, uh, basically comparing him to an animal. Uh, you know, the prosecutor goes on, talks about uh, one of my favorite shows, uh, you know, is on the Nature Channel. Uh, and whenever they show a lion, they always show the lion going to attack. Uh, it's so much more interesting to people than just the herd moving together, but when a lion attacks without fail, the lion attacks either the older animals or the weaker animals that they have that have strayed from the pack um or are alone and that's exactly what happened on january twenty ninth nineteen ninety eight uh, and then the prosecutor concludes by saying that Mr. Lewis is basically a predator uh who singled her out to take her purse He specifically uses the word predator yes um and it's it's disappointing to see about i mean we see this all the time uh this is this is the kind of argument that i frankly think this happens today uh in 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 you know parishes around the state but it, to me it's strikes of uh racism and and unfairness to mr lewis uh, obviously there there's no one here telling his story uh and there's no one countering the narrative that the state has that that this is, you know, an evil predator. But when I look at these records, I see somebody who is clearly committing crimes of poverty. Uh, He's never actually seriously harmed anybody in any of these offences, and it looks like he's struggling to get by.
2: Maurice was sent to Angola, where he spent 23 years behind bars until Biddish and the Civil Rights Division took up his case. They had the multi-bill element of his conviction removed and he was finally released. Just walking me into the Orleans Parish Criminal Courts building and uh, there's no recording allowed, so i to turn it on. I watched Maurice's hearing. He burst into tears and said, God bless you. I'll never do this again. Thank you for putting me back with my family. It was pretty extraordinary to watch. How easy it was to undo the multi-bill. Ten minutes in court after 23 years in prison. And suddenly, he was a free man. But what happens next, when you've been incarcerated for pretty much your entire adult life? Is it even possible to make a fresh start after decades of the brutality of prison? Maurice goes off to be processed, and I tried to track him down a few weeks later. I turned up to his brother's apartment three or four times and no one was home. So I wrote him a letter and hoped he'd call me.
3: This is your friend Maurice. Please call me back today. And God bless you, my friend. Now we'll be looking to get you a call. Thank you. <laughs> How you doing? Hey, what's up? How you doing?
2: Fine, thanks. Just looking for uh, Maurice. Maurice? Yeah, he's uh, uh, Eugene's brother. Eugene?
5: Uh, Eugene got the base truck. Look. I, don't, I
2: don't know what truck he's got. Goes by the name of Duke sometimes. I think he's up. I think he lives upstairs. Oh okay. hey, yeah. You have on? a good day. Hi, what's hey, on? there
3: he is. Oh, there he is. It. That's
2: really I think you looked for his brother. All right. <laughs> Oh, I, didn't even, I didn't even see We you. drive over to a cafe in the city and order some lunch. I'm about to see if you want to sit outside. We can sit outside. Yeah, yeah, whatever works. Do you want to have a look at the menu first, Maurice, and see what you want? then
0: get table.
2: Maurice has a sandwich and a cupcake.
3: I don't know why I like the sweets. I love it. <laughs> so, you can have mine. I
2: Maurice left school at the age of 14 without learning to read. He had taken a few low-paying jobs, delivering newspapers and cleaning dishes at a local hotel, he told me about his time inside Angola. The time he said he was placed in restraints, shortly after a breakdown he had when his mum, Alice, died and he couldn't go to her funeral. When, um, I was in Angola. I couldn't go. They didn't want to let me go because of the corona.
3: So how you think I felt, you know? I mean, I couldn't lay there and really could be that look down on my mum.
2: You know, that's my mum. When he got out, he was overjoyed and he still can't believe he's free. But increasingly, it's been a struggle. He got a job pot washing in a restaurant. But when his boss found out about his criminal record, he says he got sacked. Doesn't know how to use a mobile phone. He's got no bank account, no driver's license or a state ID. They
3: always ask for like an ID. They want an ID card, you know, identification. Yeah. How can you give a person an ID when you don't have an ID, you know? You don't have an ID. I don't have an ID. I just have my purpose. And that makes
2: finding another job harder. He told me sometimes he just walks down Canal Street <laughs> where all the tourists go, looking for work, with no luck. He doesn't have enough money, and he doesn't have enough clothes either. So what do you need at the moment, Maurice? Like, what is the, what is, in, what what do you not have in your life, what have you not been able to get since you came out, that you need?
3: Clothes-wise, I'm short on that, you know, no socks, you know. Um, using a good friend of mine a dude that, I you know, using his jacket, you know. Um, my soap, my little you know. Mm-hmm. You know, my you know. The thing that I need, you know, not what I
2: want. I got, I One shower. day I met up with Maurice for a walk on a blustery afternoon. He told me he's mostly living with his younger brother Eugene. But Eugene's flat is small. So Maurice sleeps in the living room. Every morning when he wakes up, he's facing this huge life-size photo of his mum, who he's still grieving. I mean you got a mother and you know I guess they don't feel
3: from right now to day I'm still messing about it because I see pictures in my brother's house. You know, of my mother and I'm like, you know, I'm looking at the pictures like looking at the pictures in here. I mean like
2: that hurts me from the Dion right here, you know my mom, That's my mind when you hear him. Sometimes it gets too much and he just wanders around the streets alone.
3: I gotta be there, you know. I walk these streets man trying to get sleepy. I go live and I slept all under the bridge somewhere, you know are I mean? going to be honest with you? Slept under a bridge. I'm being real with you, I slept all under the bridge, you know?
2: The more time I spent with Maurice, the more I thought about Jason's promise to reckon with the past, and what that means. How difficult it is for one small group of lawyers in one corner of the system trying to fight this battle, essentially by themselves. Particularly when you begin to see the long-term trauma that incarceration causes. Everyone they're assisting has a re-entry plan, and non-profits offer help where they can, But reality is just sometimes more complicated. You can't change the past. Maurice won't get his time back. And back at the district attorney's office, I wondered what Emily thought about that.
4: I feel that we are letting people down, not because they are clients or they are our responsibility, but because they are everyone's responsibility. We rely on non-profits. We rely on people's lawyers to make sure they've got somewhere to go. But ultimately, there isn't anything we can do to ensure that people thrive.
2: There is one thing about Maurice's resentencing agreement that doesn't necessarily help him. When he gets out of prison, he can't sue for the extra time he served in Angola. That's baked into the deal. I want to be clear that most likely if Maurice did try to sue, he probably wouldn't win. As excessive as his sentence was, the state was acting perfectly legally when it put him in prison for that long. So it's really just a safety mechanism for the DA's office. But to Emily, it still feels like a bit of a compromise.
4: If somebody is able to sue because they spent more time in prison than the original sentence, we could not do any of these cases. If we were to remove, try to, try to undo 10 life sentences for purse snatching, and, so, and each of those people has already done five more years than the underlying sentence for purse snatching, the project would grind to a halt after the first one if anybody could sue, whether it's us, whether it's the Department of Corrections, or whether it's the court system. The broader question of how do we compensate a, a community, a population, for centuries of a crime and then absolutely no recognition of that crime Um, and all the challenges that come with that Is a very important question that we are, you know, we actively think about. But there is only so much that this office can do in terms of addressing the sins of the past. And we are trying to do what we have in our power here as broadly as possible and as responsibly as possible. If we do not do it responsibly, it will fail.
2: Coming up, Biddish starts working on Quante's case. Over the years, Quante had been trying to get the DA to hand over whatever files they had on him, with not much success. And for a long time, he was doing all of this pretty much on his own. But then, he started getting some help.
0: Well, when I first heard about the case, I uh, knew that it was a case that um, rested entirely on the testimony and therefore the credibility of one witness.
2: For over a decade, his lawyer has been Sheila Myers. Sheila Myers. And for years, she was actually a prosecutor in Harry Connick's district attorney's office. Now she's a defence lawyer, a supervising attorney at the Tulane Law School criminal justice clinic.
0: There was no scientific evidence linking Mr. Reeder to the crime. There was no physical evidence. This was the day, you know, before cell phones. There were no cell phone records. Um, There were no fingerprints. There were no uh, firearms identification. There was nothing. The entire case rested upon the testimony of one gentleman.
2: One thing Sheila was always particularly interested in was the way that single testifying eyewitness, Earl Price, talked about his prior convictions when asked about them at Quante's two trials.
0: Mr Price had testified at one trial one way about his prior record and at the second trial he testified uh, differently about his prior record and I was just uh, personally curious to see what was he really convicted of? It was a, a, an out-of-state conviction. So uh, I contacted, it was from Mississippi, I contacted the clerk's office uh, in the county where it happened and requested a copy of that conviction. It listed that he had been convicted in federal court of lying. And that information had never been provided to the defense counsel.
2: The conviction was basically that Price had lied on a firearms application. And Sheila thought it was significant. It would have undermined the credibility of his testimony and therefore should have been disclosed pre-trial. She's made this argument in front of successive judges, but they've all rejected it. So this time, Quante was on his final shot before the US Supreme Court. Once the appeal is lodged, the DA's office has to decide how they're going to respond. And after a while, the case found its way onto the desk of Bidish Sama.
5: So when I came to work at the office, I my plan was to work on all of these cases where there were excessive sentences and the unfair use of the habitual offender law. Uh, so you know I was looking at cases like Maurice's and Maurice's case, uh, and in the middle of that, I ended up getting a message from Ben Cohen, who runs the appeals division here in our office, uh, and he said that he had been litigating a case in the appeals division. Uh, where the defense had made an allegation that our office had violated its obligations under Brady. Uh, He said that he hadn't had a chance to really review the case, uh, but he asked me if I wanted to take a look.
2: Biddish now had Quante's entire file in his hands. In the almost three decades Quante had been in prison, this is something none of his lawyers had ever seen.
5: It was 970 pages, uh, which is pretty big. And I think one thing that happens when you look at these files is you see a rhythm to how the file is put together, so you know that the police reports are probably going to be near the front. some of the charging documents will be there. But the things that I w- was looking for in particular were how did the d a s office interact with the case. Show me some of the key documents that you got in this case so one of the interesting things about Mr. Reader's case is that he actually went to trial twice um and so after the first trial, after any trial in the office uh, in this time, the prosecutors would complete something that's called the jury trial report, uh, which is basically a one-page summary of what happened. So we're looking at the jury trial report now. Uh, it's a memo that is to Harry Connick uh, from the prosecutors on the case. Uh, lead counsel was Michael Daniels. It's in Section E, Judge Calvin Johnson. There's a section at the bottom for remarks, and these are basically the prosecutors' subjective interpretations of what happened at the trial, what was important at the trial. And we see in Mr. Reader's case that at the first trial, the jury hung, so they couldn't decide whether or not they thought he was guilty. Um, So that in itself is interesting and and shows that maybe the evidence wasn't very strong. Uh, One of the things that our office included in its notations about the case is that each time, this is a quote from the jury trial report, each time Price, who is the lone eyewitness who testified, each time Price tells his story, it changes. Um, So that jumps out to me as a question about the reliability of the main witness in the case. For whatever reason, the notes that are in the DA file are not in any kind of chronological order. So this is a couple months before the first trial. I see handwritten notes. It looks like Mr. Price, you know, it says office interview. So it looks like Mr. Price came to the office to talk to somebody about the case. And he's sort of relaying what happened that day. There's a conversation about what happens afterwards uh, when the police get there. And that's when it got really interesting to me because there's a little sketch and it just says six six squares. So to me, I was thinking uh, they're probably talking about the lineup. It says Price says he picked number five. I know that's an issue because at the trial, Mr. Reader's photo is number six. So I immediately realize something strange is going on here. Interestingly, so does the prosecutor who's doing the interview. He knows immediately that this is a problem.
2: At the top of the page, under that little diagram of the photo lineup, The prosecutor has written Photo number 5 That would be In clear writing The name of the alternate suspect Bird Remember the guy from the first episode Who the police seemed interested in The one who seemingly had a motive His ex-girlfriend was dating Mark Who reportedly said He was going to make Mark pay And who The ex-girlfriend alleged called to tell her Mark had been shot and seemingly knew all the details about how it had happened. Earl Price was saying to the prosecutor, I picked out his number from the photo lineup, not Quante's.
5: But it goes on, so it's really interesting. Price is adamant that he picked number five and not number six. So not only is he saying, I picked someone who wasn't Mr. Reader, I know for sure I picked somebody who wasn't Mr. Reader. Um, It says it again, Price is adamant that he picked out number five. And then the last thing it says on this page is, Price says that his name will be under number five. And that would mean that his name would be under the alternate suspect.
2: So what these notes basically say is that on four instances in this one interview, the lone eyewitness in the case insists that he has picked out The other suspect.
5: Exactly. That's exactly right. One thing that really struck me as I continued reading is that I, I eventually learned that this wasn't the first time that Mr. Price had come to our office and told us that he picked out a different photo in the lineup. Uh, Shortly after these notes appear from the December of 1993 office interview, I find an office interview from October of 1993, so about two months earlier. It's a different prosecutor. It's different handwriting. Um, handwriting. Much better handwriting, much easier to read. Um, But then looking at this carefully, it says, police showed him picture, one sheet he picked out, signed back of picture number five. So he was saying in October and in December that he picked out photo number five. And we know from the trial um, that Mr. Reader's photo was photo number six. And I knew instinctively, based on my review of the rest of the file, everything else I'd looked at before this, that this had never been disclosed to anybody before outside of our office. Uh, The defense attorneys didn't know this before the trial because if they had known this before the trial, they certainly would have used it and it never came up. I remember calling Emily because I knew that this was such a big deal and telling her something along the lines of, holy shit.
2: Tomorrow, Quante's case goes back to court and...
3: Uh, Oliver, my name is Harry Connick. I have a message to call you. Thank you, Oliver.
2: We made contact with the alternate suspect in the case, Bird, who has never been charged in relation to the crime. I presented him with the allegations made against him during the police investigation, and later sworn to in court. He said he had, quote, no involvement whatsoever in the killing, and the mark was a friend of his. He was also interviewed by investigators for the Civil Rights Division as part of their re-investigation of the case.
1: This series is presented by Oliver Lockland. The series producer is Josh Kelly. Original music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. Additional development production by Katie Fernelius and Pete Sale. We'll be back tomorrow, Monday, for the final episode of The Division New Orleans.